page 259, Ruth chapter 2. Several years ago, I was uh, riding in a car with a seasoned, old, retired pastor. Actually, many of you know this uh, pastor. He used to be a pastor of this church. His name was Pastor Evans. And uh, I was riding in the car with him. And there was, I forget who else was with me, but it was another younger pastor. And um, we were driving him somewhere. and, And so I just asked him, I said, hey, Pastor Evans. I said, you got two young pastors in the car here with you. Give us some advice. What would you say to young pastors? And he thought for a moment, and, it, and then he finally said, be faithful. And he went on to just talk a little bit about that. You know, just be faithful. Be faithful preaching the Bible. Be faithful preaching the gospel. Be faithful as a pastor in your church. And regardless of whether things are going good or whether things are going bad, whether people are responding positively or whether people are upset and grumpy. Just be faithful to what God has called you to do. And I've always remembered those words, um, not only because they're so wonderfully true and biblical, but also I think because they continue to strike me as refreshingly countercultural. They seem to be the opposite message than what our culture would say, and sometimes, if we're honest, even what American evangelicalism would say. I think there's sometimes an unspoken message, maybe you don't hear this, but I hear it sometimes, where the unspoken message is something more like, be successful, not be faithful, regardless of what happens in terms of success, however one would measure that. We live in the age of the mega church led by the celebrity pastor whose message is beamed out all over to different campuses where where other people uh, gather to watch this celebrity pastor on TV as if there are no other pastors who could be raised up to preach in the world. And and international ministries. We live in the area where we we honor and, and valorize and make much of celebrities who we find out are Christians, or at least believe in God, you know, maybe, in some way. And we're like, oh, you know, they said something about God in an interview in People magazine, ah. Oh. We, we, we we're intrigued with, with sports heroes and coaches and, and titans of industry who've been wildly successful in business, and yet we find out they're a Christian, and we, we're all excited about them. Now, don't get me wrong. Please mis- don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not in any way critiquing successful people who love Jesus. Hey, I wish more did. <laughs> I-, I wish all the people at you know, the Oscars loved Jesus. So I'm not- that's not the point. My point is more, I think, what, what we tend to do in-, in lifting them up and making much of them. But what about people who are faithful but not successful? What about 99.99% of pastors in the world who, who are really faithful, who really love Jesus and are, you know, really praying and being true to the word, but they don't lead mega ministries and you'll never hear of them? What about all the businessmen and businesswomen who just go to work and they work hard and they're working 
try, trying to hold up a high ethical standard in their work because they want to honor God in their work, and they want to honor God with, with their profits from their business, and they want to honor God with what they do, and yet it's hard, and they're not making it big, and they're not succeeding huge, but they're just being faithful in their work. You know, what about that? Is, is that significant? What about moms who have kids? And your kids, you love them, but they're not going to be superstars, just be honest. They're probably not going to be the leaders of the world when they grow up. They're definitely not going to be the leaders of the sports teams. They're not going to be pro athletes. I mean, you've seen them on the soccer field every week, and you're like, oh, you know, it's not going to happen. But you're a faithful parent. You're faithfully teaching them about the Lord. You're faithfully enforcing right and wrong and discipline and loving them. And, and you're doing that, and, and you know, you're not always getting the results that you would like to get from your kids. What about faithful parents? Where is faithfulness in this? And, and I guess what I'm saying is I think a lot of times we're not really oriented to faithfulness. We're oriented to success. I suppose that's why I love the book of Ruth. It's one of the many reasons, actually. It's such a great story. I love Ruth. Christians love this book. And I think one of the reasons is because two of the main characters in this story are, are absolutely not even registering on the success meter. You know, it's two widows. There's old Naomi who has lost her husband, and she's lost her sons, and she has nothing, and she's too old to get remarried, or she's too old to have kids again, and now she's destitute, and she has nothing, and she's returned to Bethlehem, but totally without provision and without hope. And then the only thing she does have is this kind of crazy daughter-in-law, Ruth, this Moabite. She's not even an Israelite. And for whatever reason, Ruth has glommed on to, to Naomi like a pit bull. You know, she's just locked jaws on her, and she's like, I don't care what happens. I'm with you. You know, so... So, you know, Naomi's got that going for her, whatever that's worth. Another widow without influence who's coming back to Bethlehem, but who's actually a Moabite, so she's an outsider and a foreigner and viewed with suspicion and all that stuff. You've got needy Naomi and refugee Ruth. There's your heroes, your heroines of this story. But I'll tell you, the one thing about Ruth that's so beautiful is she is faithful. And God sees faithfulness. The world doesn't see it, but God sees it. And so today in chapter 2, we, we see again Ruth's faithfulness to Naomi in action. She promised herself to Naomi in, in chapter 1, as we saw last week, and now she, she walks the talk. She puts her words into action. She fulfills her promise. And, and even though she's this, this impoverished widow, foreigner, Moabite, God sees her faithfulness. Look at Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out again and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. 
So the chapter 2 starts out, and we're very briefly introduced to the third major character of the story. So we've met Naomi, we've met Ruth, and now we meet Boaz. And these are the three characters who are going to uh, be in the front of this story. And, and we learn two things about Boaz. The first is that he is successful. It says in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, he's a man of standing. The Hebrew words there imply something like like success and prosperity and influence. He was a, an important person in the town. He's the opposite of Ruth and Naomi. Right? He actually is influential. He actually has done really well. He has lots of resources and lots of respect in his community. The other thing we learn about him is that he's a relative of Naomi's deceased husband. He's a relative of Elimelech. They're from the same tribe. And so that's just kind of dropped in there as, as the author of Ruth is just slowly building this story. But then the scene quickly shifts back to refugee Ruth and needy Naomi in verse 2. It says, Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. In other words, what she's saying is, I'm going to go glean. Um, now, now we, we learned last week that the barley harvest had just begun, the harvest season in Israel was just starting. So, so what gleaning would be, would, it was just how it works. So you'd, you'd have a field, and the owner of the field would hire workers, or he'd have servants, and usually these are you know, men out there all day bending over, grabbing you know, wheat or barley, and they're taking their reaping sickles, and they're, they're doing, you know, just chopping the wheat. And when they get a, a large armful, then they walk over and deposit it, and they, they do some more. And then behind that would come another group. In this case, it, it might have been like the servant girls. We'll see in a minute. But, but another group of people who would come, and they would take these piles of grain, and they'd tie them up, and they'd haul them off. But then there would be a third group that would come along, and these would be the gleaners. And the gleaners... They didn't own the property. They weren't hired. They're just poor people trying to find some scraps. So what the gleaners would do is they would walk along, and and as you can imagine, this is not a precise process. They're just cutting this all by hand, and so there's going to be pieces of grain that are on the ground. And so the gleaners are coming along, you know, picking up the scraps and hoping that that you know the the harvesters are kind of sloppy, and there's a little bit left over. Uh, It's not a glorious way to make a living. It's like you know trying to find aluminum cans and recycle them to make a living. It's like, um, you know, going to the bakery and asking if they are going to throw any of the bread out that day and, you know, could we have that? It's, it's not. It's, it's just subsistence living. It's like below subsistence living. Interestingly, Israel's laws, the laws of Israel uh, that God gave to Israel, made provision for gleaning. God told the Israelites in his law, he said, when you harvest your field and, and you cut your grain, and you pile it up. Don't go back over the field and pick up the scraps. Leave it for the poor. Um, God said, when you go and you're picking grapes off the vine, and you finish a particular vine, and you go to the next vine, don't go back later and be like, did I miss any? You know, sometimes you're like trying to pick blueberries or something, and you think you got it all, and you walk around the other side of the bush, and you find more. He's like, don't do that. When you're done with the vine, be done, and move on, so that the poor can come and have something to provide for themselves. And so this, was, this is God's law for the people. So here's Ruth. She's like, hey, I can do something. I can glean. I'm, I'm going to go to this field and glean behind these people. So it's a, a really poor, struggling thing to do. I mean, maybe you've done that. Maybe you've had to just survive sometimes. Do you, have you ever had to just take a job just to pay the bill? And, you know, the job you took didn't really pay the bills, but it was more than zero. <laughs> so you're like... <laughs> I got to do it. 
I got to take two jobs. I just got to do what I got to do to just survive. And that's where Ruth is at. But what's great about it is that she's doing this for Naomi. She's trying to provide. She's being faithful. And God sees faithfulness. Faithfulness doesn't always show up on the radar of the world. We, we see success, but God sees faithfulness and loyalty. And so it just so happens, verse 3, she went out again and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. And as it turned out, just so happened, coincidentally, that she found herself in the field belonging to Boaz from the same clan as her, Naomi's deceased husband from the, tri- the clan of Elimelech's that he was in. Just so happened, you know. Of course, it's, you know, the, the author's writing this kind of with a wink. You know, it didn't just so happen. God is orchestrating this. Ruth has no clue who Boaz is. She has no clue what the connection is. She's just trying to get some grain. But God is, God is sovereign over all things. God is always working. And he's working for people who put their faith in him. We can't always see it. And as we talked about last Sunday, just because we can't see God working doesn't mean God is working isn't working. He's always working, whether we see it or not. And he's, he's faithful. And God has orchestrated it, so she just happened to fall into this field. Well, now finally, Boaz comes onto the scene. And it's not just God who sees Ruth's faithfulness. Boaz, who really is God's man in this story, sees Ruth's faithfulness too. Look at verse 4. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. So again, we see that that Boaz is a godly man. He's a man who is identified with the Lord. He follows the Lord. He's greeting these guys and he looks out over his field and, you know, this is a guy who's on top of his business. He looks out and he sees the one person he doesn't recognize, Ruth. So Boaz asked the foreman, verse 5, whose young woman is that? Where's she from? Who does she belong to? What's her family? And the foreman replied, she's the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from the morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So everyone's probably heard the story about Naomi who came back with her strange daughter-in-law from Moab. And, and the foreman's like, that's, that's her. That's the one that everyone has been talking about. She's out in the field gleaning for her mother-in-law. And so Boaz strides out into the field. And, and I love this interaction in verses 8 through 10. Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. And at this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? You know, I can just imagine this scene. Here's Ruth out there, you know, just scrabbling around, picking up, picking up grain, you know, trying to not let the other gleaners get the grain, you know. I think of gleaning as kind of like an Easter egg hunt. You know, you kids, any of you kids do the Easter egg hunt where there's like all the Easter eggs out in the field and they say, go, and you've got to run out. And I, I just remember having a lot of anxiety during Easter egg hunts because I'm like, I've got to beat out all these other kids. 
they're getting the eggs, and I need to get the eggs. So I wonder if that's how it must be like gleaning, like you're kind of you're stressed because it's financially stressful anyway, and you're trying to get the grain, and you're like, oh, that guy over there found a good pile, you know, and, and so here she's just, you know, gleaning away, and here comes the owner of the field making a beeline right toward her and, you know, stands in front of her, and she's got to think like, uh-oh, I'm done. I'm about to get kicked out, you know. He found out, you know, get out of here, you dirty Moabite. Don't you bring your Gentile pagan, you know, to my field. We don't want your kind here. Right? That's what you kind of expect. And instead, he does something that doesn't just, it just never happens to gleaners. He's like, stay in my field. Only be in my fields. Wherever these guys go, that's where you go. Stay close to the servant girls, which probably meant for her protection. It possibly, we don't know exactly, but it might have meant like, hey, you be with the people who are wrapping up the grain. In other words, get in on the first dibs of the gleaning. As they're wrapping up grain and are doing that, don't, don't hang back with the other gleaners who are trying to keep a respectful distance. Like, you be with them, so you're going to basically get to the front of the line. Like, the Easter egg hunt starts in 10 minutes, but I want you to go out now with your basket and get all the eggs you want. Before the, you go find the golden egg that you know lets you get the the big you know prize whatever, like you go ahead, Ruth, and, and not only that, if you're thirsty, just go hang out with my workers and get some water. Like, hey, I, I know you're out there working on on my yard and, and you're a hired worker, but hey, if you need something, the fridge is there. Whatever, just go use the fridge, get some water. And she's like, what? What? why is this happening? This is completely out of the blue for her. So she, you know, she, she bows down in verse 10. She exclaims, why have I found such favor in your eyes? I don't even know why this is happening. I'm a foreigner. On top of it all, Ruth is somebody who really has no standing in Israel. She's not one of God's people, at least in terms of her heritage. Why is Boaz doing this? Because God sees faithfulness. And Boaz, who again is God's man, in many ways Boaz is the instrument through whom God functions in this story. Boaz sees faithfulness. And so that's what he explains in verses 11 and 12. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What a beautiful statement. And I really think verses 11 to 12 are the heart of chapter 2. It's the interpretive clue. Oftentimes when you're reading narrative material in the Old Testament, you're trying to make sense of like what's the main point. There'll often be a, a speech or there'll be a phrase that the narrator throws in that'll be kind of like the, the key that unlocks the meaning of the whole passage. And I think verses 11 and 12 are the key that unlock the meaning of this whole passage for us. It's a speech that Boaz gives. And often in Ruth, there are these key speeches, right? So you remember in chapter one, Naomi gives, or Ruth gives the key speech where you go, I will go, your people will be my people. And so now Boaz gives the key speech, and he says, I've been told about you. I've been told about your faithfulness. So let's just slow down a little bit and look in more detail at verses 11 and 12. And what I notice here is that in verses 11 and 12, we see Ruth's faithfulness, and it's in two dimensions, kind of like we saw last Sunday. 
There's a horizontal dimension to Ruth's faithfulness in verse 11, and there's a vertical Godward dimension to Ruth's faithfulness in verse 12. So the horizontal version is that she's been loyal to her mother-in-law. You know, I, I know why you're out here gleaning. It's because you're trying to take care of your mother-in-law that you pledged yourself to. Do you guys remember that from last week? In fact, let's just go back, look back at chapter 1. Let's read Ruth's pledge again, chapter 1, verse 16. In case you weren't here, we, you need to read this little speech. Ruth 1.16, Ruth replied, to, this is to Naomi, her mother-in-law, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you from me. That was her her pledge, and now she's fulfilling her pledge. It's a beautiful thing, this loyalty that Ruth has, this faithfulness. There's a wonderful Hebrew word that it actually occurs several times in Ruth, and it's a Hebrew word that epitomizes the kind of commitment that Ruth is showing here. It's the Hebrew word chesed. So I'm going to teach you this word. So it's, think H-E-S-E-D, chesed. Except that the first H is not a soft H, it's a guttural H. We don't really have gutturals in English. But, you know, think like you're, like you're hocking up a loogie, you know? It's like, right? Just kind of throw a little bit of that on the front. Chesed. Say it, it's fun. Chesed, chesed. You know? Sometimes I wish I knew Arabic. I mean, I just think, you know, those guttural languages are wonderful. Chesed. It's a funny-sounding word, but it's a wonderful thing. There is really no English word that perfectly translates chesed. And so when you find chesed translated in the, the, the Bible... In English, that you find different words used because there's no like there's not like one English word that like perfectly captures it. It takes like about three different English words to capture the idea of chesed. So part of chesed is love, it's it's loving somebody, but but chesed is more than love. You know, love can just be kind of a feeling sometimes, or it can be sentimentality. Chesed is more than love. Chesed is also loyalty and faithfulness. You know, it's not just that you love the Red Sox, but you you supported the Red Sox long before they broke the curse of the Bambino. Back when they were terrible. <laughs> you know, back when, when they just were laboring under the curse and they never did any good, you had season tickets. You know, you had chesed. You were loyal. But it's even more than that. It's not just love and it's not just loyalty. But chesed also has this idea, and often it occurs in contexts, where, where people have made a promise to each other. They've entered into a covenant together. So it's not just like, I love those people and I'm going to follow the patriots no matter what, but it's, it's we have entered a covenant, you know, like a covenant of marriage or God's covenant with, with Israel. And one of the things they were to pledge to each other was chesed, that they would uphold the, the promises. Like Samwise Gamgee in The Lord of the Rings, where he tells Frodo, I made a promise, Mr. Frodo. I won't leave you, Mr. Frodo. No matter where you go, I have made a vow that I will stay with you. And so here, Ruth is showing chesed because she's made a promise. She is going to stick with Naomi no matter what. That's chesed. It's love plus loyalty plus a, a covenantal framework where you're really upholding vows and promises that you've made to each other. That's the, full, the fullness of this wonderful, 
word. It's an unfailing, committed, devoted, faithful love. It's the kind of love that the Lord Jesus Christ has for us. Jesus said, no greater love has a man than this, than he what? Lay down his life for his friends. And of course, Jesus had that kind of love. He gave himself up on the cross for us. As the choir just so beautifully sang, we we celebrate the manger, but for us as Christians, we're looking beyond the manger and we see in the distance the shadow of the cross. That Christ died to save us. We are spiritually a big bunch of needy Naomi's. We need God's salvation. No matter how successful you are in the world's eyes, we are all sinners in need of a Savior. There's nobody here who has the spiritual or moral resources to to make the grade with God. We are all sinful. We're all broken. None of us can please God. None of us is good enough. None of us is spiritual enough. But God sent Jesus to be our Savior, to, to die on the cross. And, and it was that love that Christ has, a, a love that, that is loyal to us, even when we don't have anything to give back in return, which we don't. God set his love on us in Jesus. The Father and the Son before time covenanted together to save a people. And Jesus is faithful to that covenant to come and to save a people. And so now, Ruth, I think, exemplifies that kind of faithfulness. And God sees that faithfulness. God sees chesed. Ruth is not successful by any measurement, ancient or modern. But she is faithful. You know, faithfulness is is something God's looking for from us. It's, It's one thing to have your parents over for Thanksgiving, right? It's another thing to, like, take care of your parents when they're old and have them in your house and... And in, you know, when they're failing, and that's really hard. It takes a lot of energy and time. Not a lot of success and glamour of that. But it's faithfulness. It's loyalty, taking care of your parents. You know, you take care of your parents when they get really old sometimes and are really struggling in their health. And, like, all it really gives you is stress and tiredness, and it's hard. And no one's walking around saying, good job. You just are kind of laboring away. But, but you know, it's showing your parents the same chesed that they showed you when you were a baby. And they're taking care of you as you switch roles at the other end of life. Everybody loves their wedding day. I, you know, I do weddings as a pastor sometimes. I did one yesterday. And, um, you know, when, when people get married, like, everyone's happy. It's great, you know. Weddings are always like, you know, rainbow-colored unicorns are flying around and <laughs> sparkly teddy bears. And they just, they all love each other so much, you know. But <laughs> marriage takes chesed. Marriage takes work. You know, being faithful to your spouse when they're unemployed. Being faithful to your spouse and loyal and supportive when they're depressed. Being faithful and loyal to your wife when she's going through menopause. (laughs) Being faithful to your husband when he's got low T and he's getting cranky. Being faithful to your spouse when, when they're going through dementia and they're, they're not them anymore. You know, so we often, when, when people are struggling, we, we pray for the person who's struggling, we pray for the person who's hurting, but we often don't pray for the spouse who's the caretaker. 
And we just say, well, that's great what they're doing, if we even think of them at all. But sometimes it is so exhausting and thankless to be the one who is in a marriage relationship for, for a season, short or long, the one who's outputting and outputting and outputting. It's very tiring. But God sees faithfulness. God sees the faithfulness uh, of, of church members to one another. You know, being a member of the church means that you're covenanted with other members of the church. And so if you're a member of South Shore Baptist Church here this morning, I'm not talking to anyone here who's just kind of attending, we're glad you're here, but I'm talking just to our church members. If we're church members to each other, that means that we're supposed to be covenanted together. And and it means sort of building our lives in a way that that we can be in each other's lives. Um, It's part of of our gathering here together as, as one church is to create an opportunity to do that with one another um, it, it means, you know, scheduling your life so that maybe you hang around after church for seven minutes instead of just being like, you know, I'm off. No, no, just hang around and talk to some other members. Introduce yourself. Be, be chesed to each other. Or if you do know another member who's struggling and uh, they're going through some chesed as church members is sending them an email during the week, giving them a quick call stopping by and visiting them if they're in the hospital or something. It's, it's staying committed to each other and expressing our, our covenant of membership together in faithfulness to each other. That's chesed. And it takes chesed to do ministry. It takes faithfulness. Because, like, you know, it's not always great. Ministry can be tough. You know, uh, it, it sounds great to go serve the Lord and be a Sunday school teacher, but, like, come like November, December, and you're with those second and third graders... Uh, it can be really draining and tiring, and there may not be a lot of glamour in it for you. Or, or leading that Bible study that started off really great, but now just some nights you're like, oh, I don't want to go to this Bible study, I'm tired. But, but that faithfulness in ministry, whether there's lots of fruit or whether you're struggling along, God sees chesed, he sees faithfulness, and he honors it. Where has God placed you today? to be a faithful person, to show the faithfulness like Ruth to somebody. But not only that, just to move on to verse 12, it's not only that Ruth had a a faithfulness to Naomi, but Ruth also had a a faithfulness to the Lord. This Moabite, this worshiper of other gods, had abandoned her God, and she had adopted the God of Israel. She's become an Israelite, at least by faith, even though she's not ethnically and culturally from that background. But she's crossed that line. She says, I'm, I'm one of you now. I worship your God. And Boaz sees that too. And so he says in verse 12, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel. And here's the, here's the money phrase. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. It's such a beautiful word picture, isn't it? This idea of a bird, you know, and then, like the chick coming under the, you know, the mother hen's wing, and, and she's just kind of like, you know, sitting on them and brooding. And you know, if you lift, you lift the hen up, and all these chicks are like, bah, 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 you didn't even realize there were chicks there. You know, you're under the wings and the protection of God. That's a picture of faith. You know, we talk about having faith. What does it look like to have faith? Is it just saying, oh yeah, I got faith. I think there's a God up there somewhere. Eh, that's bare belief. That's not really faith. You're like, oh, there's a man upstairs. There's got to be someone. I look out at this world and someone had to do this. Yes, but that's not faith. Faith is, is putting yourself under the wing 
and the protection of God. To be faithful to God is really to be dependent upon God. It's not, not that God needs anything from us like Naomi. There's, God's not needy. God has everything. So to be faithful to God is to continue to put your faith in God and to depend upon God and to look to His faithfulness to us. And so she has, Ruth has put herself under the wings of the Lord. And that's what it means to be a Christian and have faith, is that we put ourselves under the wings of Christ. We think of our Savior who stretched out His arms on that cross. And we have come under His arms. We've come under the cross. And, and we're putting our hope and our confidence in what Christ did for us on the cross, not in ourselves. And, and as, we, as we look to Him for our salvation, we're, we're trusting that He's the one who can save us. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's the fundamental core thing. And if you're here this morning and, and you've never really understood what it means to be a Christian, I, I would just tell you, that's it, is to look to Jesus and to place yourself under His care and His support and His salvation and to say, I need you as my Lord and my Savior. I cannot save myself. And so put yourself under His wings by faith. Put yourself under the arms of the cross. And even for those of us who are Christians, it's a continual thing, isn't it? To continue to come back to Jesus day after day and start your day with Jesus. I need you. Jesus, I'm dependent upon you. Christ, I need you. And, and as we put our faith in the Lord and come under his wings, we then become faithful Christians who are dependent upon God and, and doing it his way. God sees that. You may not be successful. You may not have a lot of money. You may not have done much in life. You may be in a really tough situation where you're just kind of struggling to get up every day and do your thing. But God sees every little act of faithfulness. He sees you at, you know, 7 a.m. just like, I guess I need to read this Bible because I need to hear from God, but I'm struggling. He sees every act of faithfulness. He sees it all. And so just be faithful to the Lord. Where, where is it right now that God is calling you to faithfulness? Be faithful. And you may say, but, but it's lame. Yeah, it might be lame. <laughs> Your life may be really lame. <laughs> Who cares? From God's perspective, he's looking for what you do with the lame situation he's put you in. Will you be faithful? You know, on the last day, when we stand before God, he's not going to judge us based upon the measures of our worldly success. He's just going to say, look, I, I gave you a talent. Were you faithful with it? Yeah, but it was a really lousy talent you gave me, God. You know? He's like, no, that's not the issue. What'd you do with what I gave you? But you gave me a terrible situation. I, mean, I had this kid who's, who's challenging, and I had, you know, my, my kid had autism, and, and my husband, you know, was, was a real loser. And, and I just had to work all these hard jobs. And I had, you know, fibromyalgia. My life was hard. Were you faithful? Were you faithful with what I gave you? That's what he's looking for. Faithfulness and trust and dependency. Not, not prosperity and glamour and fame. We're going to get all that in the new heavens and the new earth. There's no amount of good things that you could get in this world that would even compare to the, the inheritance that's coming for the faithful ones. And so we don't look to this world, ultimately, even though that's hard. I, I get it. 
but will we be faithful with what the Lord has given us to do so that we might glorify him? That's our metric for success, really. How do you know if you lived a successful life as a Christian? Answer, did you glorify God? Whatever you've been given, good or bad, have you glorified God with that? And God provides. That's how the story ends. I'll I'll just kind of wrap up the story here. What we see in the rest of the story is that God sees Ruth and God provides and cares for Ruth. He doesn't fix her whole life right away. She's still struggling. She's still going to be gleaning for the next several months during the harvest. It's not easy. She doesn't win a lottery ticket, so she doesn't have to work. But but God provides for her. Look at verse 13, rather verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. And when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. He's serving her. He's serving the gleaner. This is crazy. The gleaner doesn't eat with the workers. She ate all she wanted. She had some left over. So she's got to glean the rest of a day with a doggy bag. I mean, this, is, this is amazing. This never happens. Verse 15, as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. I don't want to hear any Moabite jokes. Right? <laughs> Just take care of her. In fact, look what they're supposed to do. Rather, verse 16, pull out some stalks from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. You know? Whoops, drop some. Ruth. You know? Whoops. She's like, this is a gleaner's paradise. Amazing. So Ruth gleaned in the field, verse 17, until evening, and then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. And if you have a little footnote there, you can see that's about a three-fifths of a bushel. And maybe you're like, how much is a bushel? It just, in other words, it's a ridiculous amount of grain for a day's gleaning. It's not, you would never get that much. And so she carried it back to town, verse 18, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. And Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over, and she had eaten enough. She's like, look at all this grain. And oh, look, I also have half a chimichanga from lunch. And, you, know, <laughs> you can have that too, mom. <laughs> what? <laughs> so, so Naomi's, she's freaking out. And so she asked her, verse 19, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place we've been working. The name of the man I work today is, what is his name again? Uh, B, 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 Boaz. You know, Boaz is his name. She doesn't know who that is. She just says Boaz. And then Naomi is amazed. Verse 20. Oh, the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He's not stopped showing kindness to living in the dead. And she added, that man is our close relative. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers. Now, what's a kinsman redeemer? We'll get into that the next two Sundays. Okay. But I'll just say for now, it, it, was, it was a person in your clan, in your tribal clan, who, who was typically a person of stature and, and influence, who, who had a special kind of legal role of, of taking care of the rights of the people in the clan, especially people in the clan who were like Naomi, who were weak and, and, and that. So we'll see. All, there's a lot that a kinsman redeemer could do. But they're kind of a defender. They were sort of an advocate for the clan members. And, and Naomi's like... Boaz, he's one of the guys. He's one of the guys who, who takes care of our people. Just, this is amazing. Then Ruth, the Moabite, said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. 
I can go get this gleaning thing for the rest of the harvest. It's not just a one-day thing. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley harvest and the wheat harvest were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. God provides and protects Ruth. This is important because the hard thing about being faithful is that when you come to the crossroads of faithfulness and you say, am I going to be faithful or am I going to try to find success and happiness in another path, it's a moment of faith. Because here's the question. If I choose the path of faithfulness, will God come through? That's the step of faith. Will God come through? Hmm. You know, I I need to be faithful here at work. I need to stand for the Lord. I need to do what's right. But will God come through? What what, what if it, it hurts my career? What if I get fired for the name of Christ? Will God take care of me? Uh, You know, can God provide for those who are faithful? Um, You know, you you, you are married, and it it is challenging, and sometimes you just think, am I really going to waste my years in this? You know, I'm, I'm still young. I could find somebody else. Will you be faithful, though? Will you trust that God will give you the strength and grace to glorify Him even in a difficult marriage? Or you're single, and you think, I'd love to be married, you know, but I know that I need to be faithful to the Lord, and, and, and I know that the Lord does not want me to, to wed myself to somebody who doesn't know Jesus. But, oh, you know, there's that nice guy at work, and he seems like a nice guy, and, you know, he's gone to church, you know, once or twice in his life, and maybe that's good enough. Maybe, maybe I can save him. You know, I can do missionary dating. You know, Lord, like, I just don't want, I just don't want, Lord, to be lonely. But God, I, you're calling me to be faithful. Ah, that's really hard. You know, will God, will God provide if you'll stay faithful to him and to his word, even in your dating and, and who, you, who you look to? Do you believe God will either give you a spouse at some point who's godly or give you the grace to glorify him with your whole life if, if you don't find someone right away or ever? Can you be faithful to him? Can we be faithful in our ministries even when they're really hard, they're really painful, you're sacrificing for the Lord but it doesn't seem like you're getting anything in return? Is it worth being faithful at school with the other kids when you so much would love to fit in? But fitting in means potty, right? It means, you know, sleeping around. It means being like all the other kids and just going in with all the immorality in your school. So it's like, I would love to fit in, but I know God wants me to be faithful. Can God give you what you need and strengthen you and encourage you, even if that means ostracism and rejection or or even just being kind of a, a wallflower in school and not part of the mainstream of the social life? Will God provide? And the message of Ruth 2, the two real big themes is one, be faithful, and number two, God rewards and sees faithfulness. Doesn't mean he was going to make your life all better. But he's going to be with you. He's going to honor you. Isn't that what we're celebrating here at Christmas? A Bethlehem, several hundred years after Ruth, where there was another young woman, and the Lord said, you're going to bear a child. And she said, may it be to me as the Lord has said. And she was faithful. 
And so Mary was faithful, and Christ came through her faithfulness. And so God provides. He hasn't fixed Ruth's situation. It's not all better. But man, God is doing great things for her, and and she's surviving. Of course, it's not all better yet. At the end of verse 23, it says she lived with her mother-in-law. That's not always the best situation. And in that culture, in that time, that was still a bad situation. Not because anything's wrong with her mother-in-law, but because in that culture and at that time, she wasn't with a husband. She wasn't with a man who could provide in the ways that would be needed in an agrarian culture. It's not a sexist comment. It's just the reality of life back then. Um, She needed that. And so, so God has taken care of her, but still there's some things unfinished. She's still living with her mother-in-law. She really could use a husband. Well, come back next Sunday. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you because you, Jesus, are chesed incarnate. You are faithfulness and love and devotion. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were faithful all the way to the cross You could have turned aside when the devil tempted you, but you were faithful to the Word of God. You could have turned aside in the Garden of Eden and called down legions of angels to defend you, but instead you surrendered yourself on the cross for our salvation. You followed the Father's plan. You are faithful, Lord Jesus. We praise you. Oh God, would you make us a faithful people? Would you help us to reflect your love and your devotion Lord, you've called us to different situations in life. Every person here reflects a different station of life. And you've called us to faithfulness to one another in relationships, in our work, with children, with parents, God. All different situations, and yet the same calling to reflect the character of Jesus, to receive your faithful love, and then to pour it out. And so, God, I just pray you'd strengthen all of us here with whatever difficult situation or whatever challenging area of faithfulness you've called us to. Help us to be like Ruth. Help us to put ourselves under the protection of your wings and to believe that you will provide. And then, Lord, use us to be little glimpses of Ruth. Maybe not successful, maybe not even a blip in the world's radar. Oh, but heaven is watching. Heaven is watching for one faithful person on planet earth right now. Oh God, may you see hundreds here in this church, we pray in Christ's name.